uh, an extensive uh, section in which the Siddhanta of Gaudiya Vaishnavism is uh, articulated by Brahma in his prayers to Krishna after Krishna showed him that uh, he's the source of all the universes and so forth in the Brahma Vimohan Lila. So the Brahma Vimohan Lila, of course, is very much uh, central to Krishna's um, Sakyarasa pastimes. And those prayers come at the end of that Brahma Vimohan Lila. So rather than in the section of my book where I'm retelling the Lila, rather than bogging it down with a considerable explanation of those prayers, the tattva, the siddhanta, and so forth. I've put a synopsis commentary of those prayers at the end of the book for the readers to refer to. So I'm working on that. That's very interesting. I lectured on some of those verses, but sorry, growing, we didn't get through all of them. Um, so some of you are familiar with that uh, section. Of course, you may have read it yourselves as well. <clears throat> But it's an important section, and it's uh, it's the one of the sections in the Bhagavatam where it's very, very uh, clearly established that uh, that that Narayan is the avatar of Krishna, a central point of the Gaudiya philosophy, and a central point of also the Balabas philosophy from the Balabas Sampradaya. Sridhar Swami also makes the same point as. Uh, some commentators from other sampradayas do as well. So, an important uh, point. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I'm so happy to hear that. So that's what I'm up to. What are the What are the questions? Okay. Today. Prabhano, you want to start? Prabhano. No, no. Prabhano. Oh, Prabhano. Prabhano. Unmute yourself. Thank you for your donation recently. Prabhana was out of the blue, if you will, volunteered to donate a cow to Saragrahi, which we were just trying to figure out how we could add another cow to our um, to our dairy to increase our milk and uh, income. So very timely. <laughs> Must be a god. <laughs> we're just an instrument here. <laughs> Yes. So what's your question? <laughs> well, I'm not sure how important this is, but um, I was I was curious about the living entity when he's at the time the creation winds up, and you know all of his upadis, everything, the senses, the mind, the ego, everything is merged into what the pradhan, I think, and he merges into Vishnu. But what about the avijja potency? Does that somehow hang on to the living entity or is that also merged into that subtle state? Avidya means ignorance. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the root cause of all the suffering in the world and so forth. From ignorance comes desire in relation to the external world and that desire then expresses itself in the action that um, accrues a reaction that is binding. That's of course what we call karma. So the question is about avidya, the root of our material uh, suffering and karmic implication and what happens to it when the universe having expanded, so to speak, with the breath of Vishnu contracts and comes back within him and uh, all the constituents of the universe kind of enfold back into Vishnu, the jivas are now in that condition, it's called susupti, which means like deep sleep. They're more in a in kind of a homogeneous uh, condition, not separated by their karmic propensities, which are no longer, or for the moment, not manifest. Mm -hmm. So that ignorance is, the brief answer to your question is that ignorance is also unmanifest. Um, it doesn't express itself but with the out-breath, if you will, of, of Vishnu and the, and the expansion of the, of the universe, then all of the ignorance comes into play, the avidya. Again, it's, it's, it's like if you have a garden, you know, I guess, 
and then at the end of the year you you pull things up and it contracts maybe there are some uh perennials <laughs> that are there uh, but they, they don't show up so it enfolds like everything else there's no that's to say there's no ignorance manifest in any a practical sense in susupti hmm? susupti is that is that deep analogous to a deep sleep if you will which we all experience when we lie down in the physical body for all intents and purposes we become oblivious to um, and, and the physical world and in the mental world also we become oblivious to or it appears to shut down because we're not dreaming either hmm? in deep sleep hmm? so they're there but they're not they're not manifest hmm? so that susupti is compared to deep sleep and the microcosmic condition of deep sleep is 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 uh, compared to the macrocosmic sleep of vishnu and all of his expansions the one becoming many now contracts and so in that sleepful restful uh, condition it's kind of it's sometimes it's it's compared to to brahman realization although there's a difference the difference being the the, the likeness being that there's like in deep sleep there's something that we we might call contentless consciousness there's no content in of the mental and physical world to be conscious getting an echo now it's gone okay there's no there's no thought there's no thing no thoughts about things no thoughts and things to be objects of one's consciousness but consciousness is existing sometimes the analogy is given that when we're in deep sleep and we wake up we say oh i was resting very well and the idea from in Vedanta is that well you can't remember something that you weren't experiencing so you're remembering the fact that you are experiencing despite the fact that thought and things that we think about the physical world were closed down so consciousness the point being exists independently of thought and things and it's restful when we become conscious of things and thoughts oh we become busy and and we become implicated in the realm of, of karma so there's a shutting down so brahman realization is something like that a closing down of the identification with thought and things and it's peaceful it's restful and it's a contentless consciousness in terms of consciousness being having the function of being aware aware of what it's aware of itself i am so to speak i am restful um it's almost not <laughs> uh, it's almost not i am because <laughs> it's almost because i am is kind of a sense of individuality that's also one merges into more of a hetero homogeneous kind of sense of existence so although in brahman there are individual atoms of consciousness they're not aware of their individuality they're not of any there's no individuality that that accrues to them from karmic implications because they're beyond that but the individuality of the self and its potential to function as an individual so to speak in relation to the absolute is not manifest so it's an eternal restful state something like analogous to the deep sleep that we uh, experience so in that sense then in as much as susupti the macrocosmic deep sleep is sometimes compared to brahman realization that's how it's compared the difference of course is that it's not an eternal position therefore the karma again comes with the, with the 
with Vishnu's desire to again become many and the expanding of the universe. And then all the karma that was, was um, contracted hmm, again comes and arrests us, and, so to speak, and brings about karmic individuality. This is me, that's you, and, um, based on race, uh, gender, uh, uh, so on and so forth, the biological, psychological sense of self. That's all the karmic um, individuality. So the, the different, the oneness we've described between Susupti and Brahman, but the difference is, and it's significant, that it's not a condition that endures. Hmm? So it's a temporary relief from the uh, world of thoughts and things and it's restful and as such, comparatively speaking, there's no ignorance manifest there. Mm -hmm. But again, the difference is that ignorance will again manifest in due course with the poetic outgoing breath Vishnu. So it contracts along with every other aspect of material nature. I mean, the jivas are, in, are not enlightened, but you could say they're not in ignorance either, something like that, somewhere in between. Hope that helps. Yes. Okay. Um, Anjatadva, I'm going to ask you a question. Excuse me, excuse me, but if they were in ignorance, they would be acting accordingly. Hmm? They're not. I'm sorry, go ahead, Panchatadva. Yes. Good morning. Good morning. I'm okay. So uh, I didn't know about the cow. That's not fair. <laughs> How it's does Prabhupada find out about the cow? And I didn't. I, Krishna told him. I don't know. <laughs> ah, he and I talk every day. Prabhupada. <laughs> so it, you, yeah, it was actually it came from his mother-in-law. His mother-in-law wanted yeah. to donate a cow. He named her Tulsi. Oh, it was, it's not coming from Prabhupada. It's coming through Prabhupada via the mother-in-law. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> do you need two cows? Uh, I'll ask. We, we actually, we do. Uh, you do? But... Oh, I was just kidding. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I'm not kidding. Actually, I'm not kidding. So. We, we need, we'll need one, uh, if plans go according to plan, things go according to plan, we'll need a second one in the spring. So I'll call on you. Thank you. Okay. Appreciate it. Um, so there was a... Uh, rather shocking statement by Srila Sridhar Maharaj on Facebook the other day. Okay. Okay. Um, and it said something to the effect that Srila Sridhar Maharaj mentioned that the false ego is there only to protect <clears throat> the jiva from the realization of the, uh, the horror of his utter insignificance. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thought you might want to want to comment on that. I don't know. It was just shocking to see that. Well, uh, that's an interesting statement of his. Um, I don't remember that statement, but um, I can see how um, it can be thought of in that way. It's many things, of course. The false ego, yeah. hunkar. It's uh, that's the metaphysical false ego where we identify um, with. Um, the external world with, with matter. And then there are some implications that arise from that, which include the psychological ego for each individual and so on and so forth. I like to differentiate somewhat between the two, but, um, but that said, um, the, um, the, within the world, our uh, material identification in one sense is a positive because it gives us the opportunity because while the karma, karma is beginningless, so also there is beginningless bhakti within the world because there are always sadhakas in the world. Vishnu Narayan desires to be compassionate and um, so there are, there are always devotees in the world to whom he can show his compassion who are pining for his association, thus he appears. 
in the world and, and through them, of course, his compassion is extended to other, other persons who are non-devotees who become devotees. Um, and so in that sense, the world gives the, the jivas the opportunity to participate ultimately in bhakti and meet their maker, so to speak. Um, Jiva Vishnu has a jurisdiction over the Maya Shakti. He manifests the conditioned jivas. They're conditioned by the atmosphere due to their smallness, so to speak, in size. And so he avatars, if you will, to remedy the situation so that, um, again, they can, so to speak, meet their maker. Um, So in that sense, the construct of hunkar is has a positive connotation, and the way Shudermarsh is using it is, is is interesting, because that identification with um, matter that results in our biological psychological uh, persona um, does make us ignorant of the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm at the same time, and how, as he said, insignificant we are, which if we knew, we couldn't function, mm-hmm. which of course would, in, the, in another sense, would be, would be good because we would begin to function in relation uh, to bhaktis, but it, but it allows us to, to function in the way that we do. Um, in that sense, uh, I suppose you could say um, there's a benefit we would faint, we couldn't function as conditioned souls. But then again, in a larger sense, we don't, it's not in our interest to function as, as conditioned souls. So that knowledge of, of um, our insignificance is something that um, with good association, we can come to understand and embrace. Because along with the fact of our insignificance is the fact that we're, we're not insignificant. <laughs> because we're insignificant from one vantage point. Um, But from another vantage point, we're part and parcel of God. So there's no part of God that's insignificant. And if we become imbued by good fortune with bhakti, then uh, we become that much more significant in in his eyes and able to even overwhelm him by the influence of bhakti. and so forth. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a way of looking at the hamkar. I think that for 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 a moment. Mm-hmm. But for, but for a devotee, that insignificance is also part and parcel of praying. Is that? Yeah, I mean, knowing that we're insignificant, knowing, knowing that we're, knowing that we're insignificant uh-huh. unto itself would not enable us to function in the conditioned life in the way that we do. Mm -hmm. Knowing that we're insignificant through good association, uh, siksha, teaching, example, and so forth. We know that and we know something more at the Mm -hmm. same time. Mm -hmm. Um, That, that as I say, we're insignificant in one sense, but that's not the whole story. Mm -hmm. If that's the whole story, well then we can't function in the world. but that, 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 that's only part of the story. We're insignificant, but from a larger point of view, there's nothing insignificant about God and we're one of the Shaktis of God, hmm? a particular a particle of the, the Shakti and we have the capacity to have a relationship with him and so on and so forth. And, uh, and, and uh, that's very positive. So those are some thoughts about that statement. I hope it helps. What else? Right. Uh, Tadas? Yes. Uh, hello, hello, Maharaj. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah, so I would like to ask one question that I, um, I wrote you some time ago in a letter, and uh, you told me that I should ask it in a, in a Zoom class. So... I'll just write, uh, just read it. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, so in my, in the town that I live, there is like a small temple, uh, Iskon Temple, 
and um, there is a small community of nice devotees and I have an opportunity to serve there too. I'm doing the... Um, I, I wash Prabhupada and change clothes like twice a week. It was before quarantine, now I don't do that, but I hopefully will do that again. So uh, it allows me to enter the Pujari's room, even though I don't have initiation. And uh, one morning there, I, I noticed on the wall, there was like maybe three or four uh, like papers, A4 papers full of changes. Like it was written, the changes. Procedural changes. Cha yeah, approved changes for the standard of altar and deities worship. Yeah, and I started to read that. And uh, it told that there is no need anymore to change water for Lord Gaurachandra and Lord Nityananda in the morning and evening. It is enough to do that just in the morning. And that there must be tulsi leaf in the glasses. Also, there were written that there are changes in mantras by which acharyas from Guru Parampara are being worshipped. Klim and aim uh, words are being replaced by Om. Uh, well, I was reading this, and there was like a lot of of these changes. And as more as I I was reading, like some kind, you know, of I don't know how to say it, but it was very strange and pleasant feeling. It was like some, I, I didn't want to read that anymore because it was, I don't know, a very, very, very not nice feeling. And uh, after reading that, I was like thinking about that whole day and some questions arose and uh, I, I would like to ask one of them. So um, the question is, um, how does such standards in worship or spiritual practice is working. What does it mean when so many people in the world is doing something in the same way, like in, in practice? I mean, um, I do understand that some standards is needed that people would know how to act, the deities would look nice and be happy, but what is happening beyond our sight on the subtle level? When such processes are working, how does such standardized practice is affecting people who are in the circle of the practitioners? And what effect is it doing for people who are not in that circle? I feel that there is some huge, some kind of power generated when so many people worship chant, speak, and even think in the same standardized way. But somehow, like I have mentioned earlier, it seems scary or at least not natural. So I believe it's like kind of wide question, but I hope you could understand what I wanted to, to say. Like, well, I'll say, a, I'll say a few things in response to your question. I think I understand it. Thank you for asking. Um, but uh, deity worship, I have sometimes referred to as the realm of ritual. So it is the realm or the timeless uh, and the, and the um, um, where time meets eternity, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And um, And that which is not material appears in a, in a physical uh, form, if you will, uh, which appears to be limited um, from the external uh, point of view. But if approached properly as uh, described, mandated in the, in, in the sacred texts, that apparently limited form, limited by time and space, um, if approached properly, gives one the experience of eternity. Um, so that's something that only one who, 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 who enters into the Seva Puja, into the, into the realm of ritual properly, 
can um, have the experience of. I'm not going to be able to convince someone of that um, unless they take part in it. Well, if I say I've experienced that I'm eternal, I mean, <laughs> I can say it, but what, what is it? How can I prove it to you? There's no way for me to prove that to you. But there is, if, uh, if you can prove it to yourself, if you can enter into this, this, this realm of ritual and approach the deity that is beyond time and space that appears to be confined within and limited by time and space. Hmm. Um, but if you, again, if you approach properly, you, your experience will be different. So that's the realm of ritual. It's very powerful. It's very consuming. It has great capacity to engage all of the senses hmm, because um, the deity hears and tastes and smells and, um, and so on and so forth. So we offer things for um, the deity's uh, uh, sense enjoyment, if you will. So uh, it's a very powerful uh, realm. And um, typically um, in, in times gone by, it was quite uh, common and expected for householders in particular to worship the deity and to turn your home into a kind of a miniature temple, if you will. Many years ago, when I first went to India for the first time, I went from Australia. Prabhupada invited me to come to the first big festival in Mayapur. I was in Australia. From Australia, we flew to Madras. And from Madras, we went to, um, to West Bengal. Um, but we spent the night at, at, a, at the house of the devotee who was leading the, the group, um, house of, a, of some Madhva Brahman that devotee had met in the past and were very um, accommodating. They had invited us to stay at their house and spend the night there. So in the morning, we, we, they were serving us prasadam. We were just new devotees and one of the newer new devotees uh, said, is this offered? Because we were taught that everything should be offered to God, you know, to the deity before eating. And then the, the Brahmin who was, uh, part of the household chuckled and he said, Prabhu, everything in this house is offered. This house is offered. <laughs> so it was very, uh, I was very inspired to, to see his eyes light up and, and relate to us the consciousness, the Krishna consciousness within which he was, he was living um, as, a, as a household. Mm -hmm. so, um, so anyway, there's something said about um, Deity worship and the, and the Goswamis, founding Acharyas, the Shastra Gurus of our tradition, they all established deities, Radha Govinda, Radha Gopinath, uh, Radha Manamohan, who were the three principal deities of Vrindavan, established um, by the Goswamis um, at the time of the founding of the Sampadaya. So in the scriptures, then there are the, again, the, the ways, the means, the, 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 the kind of the language and the procedures the way of conducting oneself within the realm of ritual. Now, a lot of those things that we do in the realm of ritual don't make sense outside of the realm of ritual. They look maybe weird to somebody, but they are the way in which to relate to and conduct oneself um, in and around this particular manifestation of the Godhead. We call it Archavigraha. So the archon for, for archon, this, this particular form of the Lord, arch avatar, particular type of God's avatara or descent within time and space for the purpose of taking us beyond the limits of time and space. So how you conduct yourself with the deity is one thing. The deity is in this sense, a symbolic representation of that's the deed of Krishna of Krishna in Vrindavan. Hmm? So there's symbolic type of language and so forth that's used. It's not a symbol of something impersonal, but symbol of the of Krishna in Vrindavan. So in Krishna Vrindavan, Mother Yasoda says, sit, eat, eat. We don't say that to the deity. Sit, eat, eat. You say, Idam Naivedyam Klim Krishna So it's a different language. It's the language of the realm of ritual prescribed in the sacred texts. Now, 
if you perfect that language and that uh, mode of conduct and so forth, sipping water, pouring it three times, putting it on your head, all these type of, type of things and so forth, ringing bells at certain times. And uh, when, when Prabhupada used to, when Prabhupada came to America, actually he brought a deity with him. Hmm? And um, he used to do a little arctic and the devotees used to call it the bells. The ceremony was called bells because Prabhupada, he would do it himself, he would ring the bell and they, they didn't know what it was. So later, of course, he instituted that bells and everybody, everybody began to worship the deity at the trepidation of Prabhupada, <laughs> who was <laughs> concerned how they, will, how they will take care of him and so forth. Um, and so he instituted certain, certain, certain practices um, uh, and procedures for worshiping the deity based on the scriptural mandates hmm, and as to how to conduct oneself in the realm of ritual but they were a simplified version of that, giving the conditions. Hmm? New people uh, coming from a different background, unfamiliar with the whole idea and so on and so forth. Um, and so um, while there are fixed procedures, there are at the same time different additions or versions of there's a more complex form of worship and there are more simplified forms of worship that that um that one can um participate within the realm in within the realm of, of ritual and in each case in either case still be within what in the broad sense constitutes conducting oneself appropriately in the realm of, of ritual and of course if one does it correctly in our lineage, it being Ragmarg lineage, then you can find uh, instances of devotees saying, sit down and eat, <laughs> rather than idam naivedyam. When the deity spoke to Sanatana Goswami and said, at least you could offer some salt. He was making like unleavened bread, which is all he had, I guess. He had some, some wheat, some water, and a flame. So he would make this uh, uh, bread and he had no salt. And that was what he would offer to the deity and that's what he would eat. And one day the deity, which was hanging from the tree, that was his, his altar, <laughs> somehow supported you know, from the limb of the tree, the deity said, at least you could offer some salt. And he said, mm, shut up, he said. Next thing you'll be asking for ghee and then you'll be asking for sweets and I'm the sad, that's all I have. According to my means, it's said in Bhaktivedanta Sindhu by Rupa, according to your means, you should worship. So don't over-endeavor. <laughs> so, so, of course, the deity arranged that a salt merchant coming down the Jamuna would get stuck. Hmm? And, um, and the, the deity went and appeared as, as a young coward and, and helped the merchant get free from the sandbar and he wanted to do some service. So the merchant said, well, um, you know, give some salt to this guy, the salt, salt merchant up here who's worshiping me. So he went and actually sold his salt, came back and gave all the money to build the Radha Mohan temple, Radha Mohan Ji Ki Jai, Sanatana Goswami Ki Jai. So from offering bread, uh, so-called uh, without salt you know, to a whole temple and a, large, a more elaborate standard of worship, hmm? the, the puja, Seva puja of Madan Mohan uh, grew. Hmm? It, at one point, the temple was fully erected and flower garlands were being offered and that flower garland one morning fell and offered itself to Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami, which was thought to be the confirmation from Madan Mohan Didi that he was the chosen person to write Chaitanya Charitamritam. Shri Krishna Skaviraj Goswami Mahashaya Ki Jai. Shri Chaitanya Charitamrita Ki Jai. So, so uh, there are certain uh, parameters, hmm? but within the parameters, there are maybe different standards of worship relative to the worshiper relative to the time, the circumstance, 
ingredients that may or may not be available and so on and so forth. Um, so there, there may be slightly different procedures in different places and different times and in different sampradayas, the, the, the procedures will be, will be slightly different because the deity may be different, a different face of, of the goddess. So for Ram, there may be certain procedures, uh, for Narayan, certain procedures, and for Krishna, other procedures. So there is some uh, room for, for difference, variety there. Um, and um, and uh, I don't know, you know, I can't comment on the, on the details uh, there, but Prabhupada that you, that you encountered um, but um, uh, as I said in the beginning, Prabhupada gave us certain standards, and then he also told us that that we could learn more from actually the Radharaman Goswami, who have a very good standard of, of deity worship in Vrindavan, Radharaman being the deity of Gopal Bhatta Goswami. And there's uh, a long tradition of uh, a very nice standard of worship there. So at a certain point in Iskon, um, uh, other manuals came out uh, that were uh, approved by Prabhupada for worship that um, were more detailed than the initial um, procedures that he put in place that he thought um, would uh, his disciples would be capable of capable of um, adhering to, hmm? but. There was uh, intention that there would be progress in due in due course, so other standards could be could be um, implemented. You also have to look at the deity as the manifestation of the heart, really of the acharya who establishes the deity and the temple, and giving persons, the congregation, a larger group of 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 bhaktas, an opportunity to participate in the heart affair of the, uh, the Acharya, making, externalizing his heart, hmm, temple, hmm, um, and then whatever procedures he or she gives at the time uh, that would be within those parameters of what constitutes proper conduct in the realm of ritual, that's his or her uh, insight, discrimination, uh, wisdom, um, with a view to bring the congregation, the students, and so forth further in, and uh, he could uh, increase the standards at, at, at a certain point, and so forth. So there is room for, for that. And of course, otherwise, yes, there's great power in, um, in the deity worship for the individuals, and, and the fact that the deity is being worshipped someplace is powerful for the place and the surrounding area uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. But, and I think this is perhaps your concern, the worship has to be done properly. So it's not a whimsical thing that you make up. Um, sometimes there's the um, idea from Christianity that one should not worship idols. And when we look at that, I think from the biblical point of view, if I'm not mistaken, this was Jesus of Nazareth's comment with regard to those who are worshiping golden images, um, um, of their, you know, own mind, if you will, uh, um, their own ideas, so to speak, um, that's almost often taken to mean that well, therefore you shouldn't, you know, worship idols. But if, but here the the idea is not coming from the minds of people as to the form of God, but it's coming through the sacred texts, which significantly tell us about things that we could not know otherwise by sense perception or by reason, what is the nature of the form of God. So that the main, the main function of the scripture is to tell us about things that we cannot know otherwise. Hmm? This is an example of it. What, is, what was the form of God? What does it look like? Hmm? So we, we've had that in, in, in our scriptures. And then it's experienced also in, in meditation by, by great devotees who then uh, manifest, if you will, uh, through art and sculpture and whatnot, a likeness of that, and then give a system of worshiping that likeness that is, that is external 
for devotees who are more externally oriented. Hmm? And that serves to help when it's done properly to bring them internally, uh, to turn them in, inward hmm? and have experience of the eternality of the self and so forth. And, um, and then enter into the realm of ritual, ritual and come out, so to speak, on the other side, that realm being in between time and space and the, 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 the realm of uh, uh, Leela itself. So, um, it's, yes, it's, it, it is uh, very powerful and it should be done properly. And if it's done whimsically and not according to uh, prescribed methods in the sacred text and so on and so forth, then it, it has a counter effect. It becomes um, uh, save operad, offense to the deity, for example, um, and so I, I, I think that's, I hope that addresses your um, concerns. Um, but yes, it, it is a very powerful and scripturally based thing. So there's some tangibility to it. I, 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 there, there's some, there's some particularity to it. Um, you can't just make it up as you go along, so to speak. And I, I think that's kind of the concern that, that, that you raise. I don't, necessarily say that that's what's going on there, what, what, what their changes may have been, what they must have heard that from someone that maybe they were doing it wrong or maybe there was a better way to do it or something. So they, uh, they increased the procedure or decreased it out. I'm not sure, but I appreciate your, your concern. Those are my thoughts on it. Does that help? Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. Archie, very good much, can I? Yes, yes, you can. Very much. I had a follow-up question. Um, okay. So, like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no die here. Um, so, like, historically, we're we're in this uh, stage of like the very beginning of kind of like Gaudiya Vaishnavism becoming a global religion. Mm. And, uh, but I was thinking, if you think about it, like hundreds of years years forward when you know kind of like the connection to india has somewhat like loosened up in a way just like with christianity or any other major religion that becomes global so then do you think it'd be possible that even deity worship wouldn't be as uh codified in terms of sanskrit and the all the indian customs and stuff but just like say like in christianity they don't read the Bible in Aramaic or whatever, or Hebrew or something, and they don't use Latin anymore in a lot of their rituals. Is it possible that it could become kind of like globalized, you know, the language of deity worship? Uh, it's, it's, it's possible. It's, it's, it's certainly that um, we see that in India. Hmm? Um, a good example that I like to cite sometimes is the, is the Manipuri, um, Vaishnavas, who were um, largely brought within the fold of Gaudi Vaishnav people of Manipur through the work of Narutam Thakur, one of the great uh, and early acharyas of Gaudi Vaishnavism. And um, they, they usually make a pilgrimage to Vrindavan every year. And whenever they would come to town, you know, the Manipuris were in town. They did everything that we did, but they did it a little bit differently. Um, their kirtan was a little different, and uh, and 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 so forth. Um, and you see, also, um, uh, like take uh, Pratipraga and Keshav Marsh. He did. He composed songs. He did a beautiful Mangalartic song, in composed in um, Hindi. Whereas if you look at Bhaktivinod, all Bhaktivinod songs are in Bengali and Narutam Thakur in, Beng in, in Bengali and, and so forth. So they don't have to be in Bengali. Hmm? They could be in Hindi. They could be in whatever the dialect is in Manipur. I guess it's Hindi and something, I don't know, something else. I'm not sure. Uh, um, um, Assamese, probably something. Uh, so... Uh, of course, you know, these are so similar that they don't look different to us, right? Um, but the, uh, there are many dialects in India and in South India, hmm? different dialects. 
they don't speak Hindi there as much uh, as Malayalam and so forth. Uh, um, and uh, so, uh, it's it, one of the one of the interesting things about that is that um, I remember uh, that in Madras, the Gaudiya Math in Madras. Um, I visited some time, quite some time ago, but um, in modern times, nonetheless, and somebody said to me that oh, only Bengalis join here. So <laughs> they did everything only in Bengal, Bengali, and they, they Bengaliized it to the point that the Madrasis were felt, didn't feel at home there, so to speak, which seems to be the antithesis of what Bhakti Siddhanta was trying to do Hmm. Um, um, in his extensive outreach, trying to give shape to the uh, idea of Bhakti no Thakur to, as you say, put Gaudi Vaishnavism on the stage with other, the other world religions. That's what he very much wanted to do. So Bhakti Siddhanta was very um, innovative in, in this regard. And um, Prabhupada tried to follow suit um, and so, you know, there, there, there I, I think, yeah, there's, there's a place for that. There, there, the example is there in any, but it, it takes, it takes um, powerful devotees who are deeply acquainted with the tradition itself and the teaching and what are the core principles of the teaching um, to then express them, you know, differently in different language with different um, metaphors, different examples, um, and to um, to localize, if you will, uh, uh, the um, what's it called? The decorum. The um, what's the word for it? The uh, procedures. Procedures would be. It's not the religious word I'm looking for. What was it? Sarda. Can't hear you. You're muted, so I can't hear you. But anyway, the the um, the etiquette, lit etiquette yeah, and, you know, the, the liturgy. Let's say, you know, so the liturgy. Um, let's, uh, you know, like we see in Catholicism. When I was young, then all the masses. I was a Catholic boy. All the masses were in Latin, which I kind of liked. It was had a mystique about it. And then when my mother, my father passed away and my mother asked me to come um, and visit, uh, you know, on the occasion and so forth. Um, and at that time, I, of course, I was an initiated Vaishnava. I came and I was at home and the church called and I happened to answer the phone. They said, we want to know how you would like the mass, you know, to be done you know the priest could i guess recite from one section of the scripture or another and so i said well can you do it in latin and they said oh we can't do that <laughs> so that was it had changed so much that that was that was like lost the idea of doing it in, in latin so they did it i guess well i went to it they did it they did it in english it was different from when i was a kid when i went um so um yeah i mean there's a scope for universalizing there's one side of it um, another side of that you know discussion is that it's useful for devotees to enter into the language of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and and all cultures are not equal I mean we live in a Rajas Thomas culture it's different than the culture of Mahaprabhu's associates and so forth. So there are, there are certain features of it, aspects of it that, um, that are sattvic and even near guna, if you will, that need to be, you know, remain in place. So that um, art, if you will, of expressing universally a tradition which is universal in different language and different um, um, mannerisms and so forth has its place, but it's not uh, for anybody and everybody to do. And I, I know of a couple of examples of 
disciples of Prabhupada who were prominent members of ISKCON who failed miserably in um, their efforts to do that, hmm? to universalize um, the um, expression. And it was very uh, counterproductive. So um, we're at this point, I think, <laughs> at the stage of still trying to get people to understand what, what, it, what it really is. And, um, and some things are hard to translate also um, and convey um, concepts and words and, and so forth. I mean, culture and the language are obviously inextricably uh, entwined, but at the same time, it, we, we, we cannot err on the side of provinciality uh, when what we are actually involved in is something that's is universal. The deity is a localized um, manifestation of the Godhead that if we worship properly, some people say, what's the need of a temple? God's everywhere. Why spend all this money in a temple? God's everywhere. Well, he is everywhere, but you don't see him anywhere. You don't act like he's anywhere, except when we ask you for a donation to build a temple. Then you say he's everywhere. Otherwise, you never think about him. You don't see him anywhere. And if you did, you wouldn't act the way you did. Hmm? Uh, as if you need money to take care of yourself because you know, oh, he's perfectly capable of taking care of me. He has four arms, <laughs> at least, uh, or whatever. Hmm? He's so charming. Hmm? Um, so, um, so the temple is for you. It's not, it's not for the deity, it's, it's for you. Here's a place where, we, where he's gonna be for sure. And when you come before him, you act accordingly. And if you do, then in due course, you will see that he's everywhere. Now you will transcend the limits of the realm of ritual and the necessity of the temple, so to speak. And you will actually be able to say, there's no need for the temple. He's everywhere. For that person, that's true. That person is a temple then. And he becomes a walking, living um, uh, temple. So, um, so, the, so the point in a way is that the localized deity, when worshiped properly, will be seen to be universal. How he is everywhere, in what way, uh, and, and so forth. Um, that's what we want to get out of the deity worship. And in order to do so, hmm, yes, uh, there already have been those type of adjustments to some extent or another. Um, you know, another example of, of what you're talking about as I'm you know, responding to it. When I left ISKCON um, to take the shelter Pujapachito margin, he asked me to start, uh, go and preach and and start a mission. Hmm. Then when members of ISKCON came to our mission, they said, oh, this is, this is Godiamat. Hmm. When members of Godiamat came, they said, oh, this is ISKCON. <laughs> so <laughs> it was neither one. <laughs> it was its own thing, right? It is its own thing, I should say. Um, and taking from here and taking from there in consider of, consideration of, of the, of the of the of the members and so on and so forth so um yes yes there is uh, that would be good um if you know the sense of let's say you know where's the world going of course it's going in, in a number of different directions not all of them good but um uh, you know you talk of globalization well you know and the inevitability of india being closer than than, than it was in the, in the past, so to speak, but now globalization is, people are responding negatively to globalization because of the pandemic and, and contracting, so to speak. Um, and hopefully they'll become, we'll evolve to a more self-reliant kind of um, uh, society that would, be, that would be helpful. But um, who knows exactly what the, what the future um, is, but with regard to discussions about the nature of consciousness, which is of course very, very relevant. I think that, um, that materialistic explanations of consciousness are just failing, you know, one after, after another. And the, 
what's called matter is just kind of expanding to try to accommodate explanations that still remain material, so to speak. Um, but materialism is, is, is failing theoretically and it, it fails miserably in a practical sense because no one can walk the talk of materialism, that there's no meaning and purpose to life. Um, no one can live like that. Um, so it has no practical application in everyday life. It's super counter uh, intuitive. Um, it, 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 what to speak of, it, it, it does away with good and bad um, in any absolute in, uh, sense, uh, relativizes it all. So, so anyway, so consciousness, I think, um, you know, I tend to have a more of a pluralistic approach to um, presenting Gaudiya Vaishnavism and not as, um, I want to say combative, if you will, uh, uh, as uh, sometimes Acharyas like Prabhupada and Krishna's Kaviraj have been also, both of them in their own time, trying to establish a sect of Gaudiya Vaishnavism and distinguishing it's not this, it's not that, and, and so forth. Um, but um, I tend to be a little more less com combative. And let's say, look, for example, at monistic Advaita Vedanta. Um, and it's po quite possible that people will, will go in the, in the direction of, from a materialistic perspective on consciousness to an Advaitin perspective on consciousness, a neo-Advaitin perspective that doesn't have religious, uh, what they would call baggage along with it. And you don't have to worship or serve or, or, or anything that there's underlying, there's consciousness. We are that consciousness underlying. And that's kind of easier step for people who have been traumatized by religious dogma and misapplication of, of uh, the heart of religion presented by fundamentalists and so forth, traumatized by, um, by that and, uh, and have a, some scars, you know, that are opposed to, serving a capitalistic perspective of individuality and you know uh, all these things so <laughs> so to, to move towards an Advaitic perspective on consciousness you know that's possible mm -hmm. that's possible and then from there ah oh, well then to discuss well is it is it like that or is consciousness like this is it more robust is it more uh, you know it, it, it is a very interesting of course discussion and, and that's where we, we would have so much to offer and and say, and, and in that, you know, we come to the, the idea of, the, of forms within consciousness. Hmm? Like I like to say, the forms of matter are consciousness-based. Hmm? In other words, the consciousness of the idea, the house is an idea, right? And it takes a shape by right? someone who expresses the idea. So the forms of this world are consciousness based. So if consciousness has invested itself in matter, matter starts to take shapes. So if consciousness invests itself in itself, then there's a possibility of that taking a shape. It's an interesting idea, but shapes and forms that are not delimited within consciousness, which is not limited, not delimited by time and space. So, such as so now we're coming to the form of God, which is what we're along we're around here talking about, right? The form of God. Our scriptures speak about what God looks like hmm? on different days, in different moods, hmm? when He feels powerful, hmm. and He shows four arms, and, he, and He's worshipped with uh, with reverence, and when He feels um, like. Uh, 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 intimate and 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 then whom he associates with and how and so on and so and it's in combinations of that it's so nuanced it's 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 extraordinary and 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 here the scriptures the sacred text of the hindus that have been talking about consciousness being the underlying you know reality um that uh that uh, is the is the is the well source of everything that goes on and so forth, rather than just being some epiphenomena of the mind that 
the brain that has no efficacy, like steam coming off of water, you know. <laughs> it's quite different from materialism. It's everything. Consciousness is everything. There's such a good argument to be made for that. Hmm? I mean, you can say I'm, de I'm dead, but it doesn't mean anything. I'm dead. <laughs> How can you be speaking if you're dead? I mean, so consciousness, you can deny consciousness, but it requires consciousness to deny consciousness. So consciousness is just as the, as the, as the bedrock. Hmm? It's so intuitively natural to think like this. It's reasonable. And um, so you can't prove it with your materialistic perspective on, you know, on, on the world. Well, it's not material. So, <laughs> but at any rate, um, now, you know, from our text, that basic ground is discussed. And then within that, now we're going to discuss, that's what Gaudi Vaishnava is about. What's in the realm of consciousness is more its subject than it is the difference between consciousness and matter. That's something that's the preoccupation of, of, of Gyan. It's included in our, our, our uh, theology and so forth, but it, it's just kind of like, yeah, well, it goes without saying, so to speak. <laughs> so Gaudi Vaishnavism is really kind of speaking on a different level. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore it's a little hard to introduce it all, right? Mm -hmm. um, the form of God and you worship like this and so on and so forth. But, you know, if it should, the world should go in that direction that I'm speaking of, then, you know, there's no other sacred text nor revelation that speaks about the form of God. Mm -hmm. And in such... Uh, detail it's it's very compelling i would say and so if that could you know get uh, uh traction in the world that idea then hey you know Prabhupada said give this is Prabhupada, okay take deities of gornatai and give them to people and tell them wave incense at these deities and chant this mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, and all your desires will be fulfilled. <laughs> Akama, what is it? Sarva Kama Va Moksha Kama Udharadi, Tivrena Bhakti Yogena, Yajeta Purusham Param. Whether you have no desire, whether you have all desires, where they desire only to worship Vishnu, worship Vishnu with Tibrena Bhakti Yogena, with, with Bhakti. This is in the Bhagavatam after describing if you want this, worship this deity, if you want that, worship that deity, so on and so forth. And then it concludes, but best of all, no matter what your desires are, whether you have no desires or all kinds of material desires from one spectrum to the other, worship Vishnu with Vishnu Bhakti. So, How's that for procedure, Tadas? <laughs> That's what he said at one point. So I uh, got to start somewhere. And, um, and with such love for Gornatai, you know, he said that. Hmm? Put them in the hands of their, let it, they, such confidence in the, in, the, in the efficacy of the Maha Mantra. So if, if this idea, the form of God can get, get traction and be understood, it's very difficult for, if even if people understand reincarnation, they think, I don't want to be somebody else. No, that's not what we're saying. You're not who you think you are, first of all. Uh, and I, I heard a fellow, a famous interviewer, what's that show? Um, that guy who talks to people about consciousness all the time, Maharaj? You're, 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 what is it? Ted Talks? No. Holly? Truth something. Sorry, I, I, I didn't hear. That guy who has that show always talks with people, scientists and things about the nature of consciousness and- Oh, the Closer to Truth. Closer to Truth, right. I don't remember right. the name of the guy, but the program is Closer to right. Truth. Closer to Truth, yeah, what are they gonna say about him? Um, anyway, yeah, um, have to get on a show like that, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, if, if this, um, um, this idea can get, uh, I, I heard him say uh, in one talk that, you know, I, I don't, you know, is there life after death? And, uh, and then he said, I don't mean, I mean, like me, my life, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to just 
have a life after death that's not me, just some consciousness pulsating somewhere, you know, but me with my family, my friends, who I am, you know, so that, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, um, a hump, you know, a little hurdle to get over. And, and from there, yes, the form of God, the beatific vision, so on and so forth. Um, you know, and you got some Christians saying God has no face, you know, so what can you, what can you say? Um, you have to look at that and interpret it uh, properly. Um, it means he's wearing a mask during the pandemic, of course, setting a good example, but um, <laughs> no. So, <laughs> so yeah, I think uh, uh, if that could happen and the form of God uh, could get traction in the world, then uh, there, there's good possibility for adjusting the parameters uh, within the realm of ritual uh, in terms of perhaps language, hmm? And uh, I was thinking about it just, just, just the other day because I forgot the mantra, so I, what, you know, I'm getting older, so I just said it in English. So I was worshiping Giri Raj. I think, well, he understands. So he spoke to me in English, so <laughs> once or twice. So, so why not? Sorry for the long answer. But thank you for the question. So as it turns out, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, next week, it's very easy to get to ask the questions. Get on and. Yeah, reason to come back. Yeah, okay. Come back. Okay. Haribo. 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 Krishna. Haribo. Haribo.